Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're finishing up in chapter 15 of Revelation, recognizing Jesus as the one that brings salvation and that we cannot justify ourselves by our own good works. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word. Because he does. So don't let, anybody, don't let anybody fool you about this reality. And don't fool yourselves into thinking that by your own effort, by your own works, that, that you can make your stand before God. You can't stand and you won't stand apart from Jesus Christ. Just as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Jesus is the only way to the peace we need with God in order to be able to stand in his holy presence. Again, just as we said, Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see, it's all about Jesus. It's all about his finished work. You know, I, if you were here when I taught through Romans, and I know that was a little different for people in a perspective I took as I got to chapter 7, but I'm convinced it was a correct perspective. You know, I know we look at the chapter where Paul says what I want to do, I don't do, what I, you know, I shouldn't do, that, that I do, and he goes through that, and people apply that to sinful tendencies in their lives and said, look, Paul struggled with sin too. I told you guys, I don't think that was the better part of the emphasis in that passage. I don't think Paul was talking about some personal sin, at least not directly, that he was dealing with. I think Paul was talking about, because he preceded it by talking about how he tried to sanctify himself, how he tried to make himself right under the law by keeping the law, by being a good Pharisee, by being a good Jew, by being religious, by doing all these things, and how it only led to death. And then he rolls right into this. Unfortunately, we've separated out those two sections of that chapter in, in Christianity, and we shouldn't have. It's all one thought. And Paul rolls right from that. Now he moves to his faith in Christ, and he's talking about his faith in Christ. I think Paul was saying as he, as he was talking about the things he should do that he doesn't and the things that he does do that he shouldn't, he's talking about trying to sanctify himself even as a Christian, trying to do that through his own effort. And that in the end, it leads to the same place. It's a law keeping. It's taking him to some place that in the end, he ends up feeling just like he did when he was trying to sanctify himself under the law. Look, you and I have commands within the scripture that we should sanctify ourselves. But all of those things contextually talk about the sanctification that Christ has given to us and now walking out what he's done, but looking to him and the work that he's done in us. And when we move out from underneath that and we try to sanctify ourselves through the things that we do, what we're really saying is, oh, I can make myself the way I need to be in the eyes of God. No, you can't. No, you can't. Not even as a Christian, you cannot make yourself what you need to be in the eyes of God. Does he want you to walk out your sanctification? Absolutely. Does he want you to put feet on your faith? Absolutely. Does he want you to live a righteous life? Absolutely. But then Paul rolls right into chapter 8, and what does he begin to talk about? Life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. And that's how we begin to walk out. That's how we begin to live. That's how we begin to do these things with dependency upon the Spirit of God, who now dwells in us as New Testament, New Covenant believers, rather than upon our own abilities, upon our own flesh, upon our own ways. Is that making sense? And so even Christians can fall into the trap of thinking somehow we can enable ourselves to stand in the presence of God. I'm just telling us all, the things that we think we're standing on, even as believers, if we're not standing in Jesus, we're not going to stand 
in his presence on those things. Those things will burn. We may not fall under his judgment as an unbeliever would, but those things he will look at and say, that's hay, strubble, and straw. He's going to burn that off. It's a wasted work. Isn't it good to have the Holy Spirit? Isn't it good to know the Spirit's power to work from the inside out and to give us that ability to begin the change that we so long for? I think there are very few Christians, at least sitting in this, in this place, because I talk to you guys. I think there's very few, if any of you, that would say, you know what, I don't want to be, I, I, I want to stay the way I am. <laughs> you know, I, I got my life together. I want to be what I, no. Most of us would honestly admit and say, man, I want to be different. The problem is we don't know how to get there. But the reason we don't know how to get there is because we treat trying to figure out how to get there through our ability, through our strength. And you see, that's sanctifying ourselves. That's trying to make a stand on our own. The power of the Spirit to rely on God's Holy Spirit in our lives, the work that he's done, trusting in the cross, trusting in the power that he poured out into us as we believed, now is what we look to and we begin to say, Holy Spirit, change me. Change me from within. Jesus, change me from within. I'll yield my heart to you. I'll walk. But Lord, you've got to be the strength of my legs. You've got to be the strength of my heart. You've got to be the strength of my life. We sing a song like that, right? Be the strength of my life. That's what we need. And when that's happening, I promise you change is going to come. The change you've striven for will come. But until you do that, you're going to be like that little hamster on the wheel, trying to bring about change, trying to make yourself right before God and never really getting anywhere, you see? And so here, you know, and that's the point here as we look at that. And, and in this portion of the text, John now sees these tribulation saints, those who will be martyred for their faith that they placed in Jesus Christ during the tribulation, and they will be boldly standing on this sea of glass that's mingled with fire, and they're standing here like this because Jesus alone made it possible for them to stand, and he will do the same for you and me as well. But John also notes that they're standing there with harps in hand, harps that they're using to sing a song to God. And what song are they singing to him? Well, look at verse 3. He says, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations shall come and worship before you for your judgments have been manifested. Now you know why we sang that song this morning. I've done that with you guys before when I've led, but I love that song, and it was so appropriate to the passage this morning. I called Jenny, and I said, can you do this song? Because it's just jumping right off the pages. I almost want to sing it when I read it here in my Bible. But as we look at this, John notes these tribulation saints that are standing on that sea of glass, they're singing what appears to be two different songs, although some claim it to be one song. First, John hears them singing the song of Moses, the servant of God. Now, there are two songs that are attributed to Moses in the scriptures. The first is found in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. If you want to write these down, you can go home and read those later today. But Exodus 15, verses 1 through 21. And it's a song that Moses wrote and he sung with the people after they escaped the hand of Pharaoh at the Red Sea. A wonderful song that declares the victory which God gave to them over Pharaoh as they escaped his hand. A second song is found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32, and it's a song that God gives to Moses to teach the children of Israel just before they pass over the Jordan to finally enter the promised land. And it's a song that speaks of God's faithfulness and his provision to them. And, and from the time he called them out 
and set them apart to be his own people to the time when he'll finish that work on their behalf during the tribulation. And in light of God's faithfulness, this song also contrasts their unfaithfulness to him, but ultimately resolves itself in what God will be doing for them in the future time. So it really spans their whole history, even into the future. It's a fascinating song. But that is the second song of Moses. Now, we do not know for sure which of these two songs John is now referring to as he hears this multitude singing this song here in this day. It could be, and it most likely is, a combination of these two songs. And, and both of them would be more than appropriate to what's taking place on the earth at this time. The first song would be appropriate because it would speak of how, like the ancient Israelites, God has, and he will again deliver his people, all of his people, from this new Pharaoh. The new Pharaoh, right? Antichrist. Delivering them out of this, this new Egypt, this, this world system that Antichrist will establish. But the second song of Moses could also be appropriate because God will be bringing to pass in the nation of Israel in this day the very things that he refers to in this song. His ultimate faithful to them, faithfulness to them despite their unfaithfulness to him. How he's going to finish their deliverance. How he's going to finish the work that he began with them. So even though we don't know which of these two songs that they're singing, one or both of them would absolutely work. Well, whether or not John's seeing that in this moment, we don't know. But we do know he hears them singing some kind of a song that includes this. But in addition to the song of Moses, John tells us here that he also hears them singing the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb. Now, we know what this song is because John gives us the very words of that song as he hears them singing it. Look again at verse 3. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Some believe that this refrain is a new song formed from both the song of Moses and from the song of the Lamb, and that what John is hearing and what he's referring to aren't two different songs, but they're actually a combined song, both the song of Moses and this new song of the Lamb that they're singing. I like something that David Guzik said in his commentary. He said that it reflects a perfect union between law and love, between the old covenant and the new covenant, a song that he points out as being deeply rooted in the Old Testament and yet proclaiming the truths of the New Testament at the same time. He goes on to point out that it's a song that gives praise to four essential aspects of who and what God is, a, a song he says of four W's. The first W he says is God's works, God's works. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. God's works, how wonderful they are, how deserving of praise he is for what he's done. The greatest of the works being what? Jesus coming and dying on that cross for us, doing the work of redemption for us. Secondly, he says it declares God's ways, his ways. The second W, ways, just and true are your ways, O king of the saints. Third, he says it, it describes God's worthiness. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. God is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy. He's worthy to, to ask the things that he asks of you and that he asks of me. He alone is worthy. And finally, it declares God's right to be worshiped. For all the nations shall come and worship before you. Now, to that list, I would suggest that we could add one more, one more of my own that I kind of read into that. But the fifth one is God's powerful witness. His powerful witness for your judgments have been manifested. In other words, they're seen by all. 
And his judgments are what? They're both right and they're true. We're told in the scriptures. Now look, we don't honestly know because scripture doesn't tell us here whether it's one song or whether it's two songs that they're actually singing or if they're a combined song. This is a powerful song that they're singing. That's the bottom line. This is a powerful song that these end time saints are singing. And, and it's a powerful moment of testimony, a moment of testimony when, when they're declaring their, their own service, their own lives, giving themselves to the very Lamb of God in this moment. Remember, these are men and women whose faith in Christ has really cost them an awful lot. I mean, we think we go through difficulties. These guys, we don't even hold a candle to the things these people will be going through in this day. And they're not singing about anything else other than God himself and what he's done for them. They're not talking about themselves. They're talking about God. Look, just in that passage alone, I'd encourage you to go back and just underline on your own. Count up the number of times that they use words like you and your. Not I, me, you, and your pointing to God. I think it's a beautiful snapshot being given to us in this passage of what our worship is really to be about when it comes to God. This is what it's to be about. It's not to be about, about us. It's to be about God. It's not to be about other things in this life. It's to be about God. Now, I believe we live in a time where too much of, of, of God, the worship of God's people is being focused on wrong things. It's being directed on things that, that our worship really shouldn't be directed to. Listen to some of the songs that are popular among Christians today. So many of the songs being sung, some classified and being sung as songs of worship, are really more about them than it really is about Jesus. I'm wary of songs that are filled with words like me and I. Now look, I understand that those words can be appropriate if the overall context is Jesus, I fall before you. That's fine. But I'm just saying so many of the songs really have to do more with our lives than it has to do with Jesus and the work and he's done for us. And it's not just the songs that our people are singing. It seems like this is becoming the focus with a lot of things that has to do with spiritual things today. A lot of ministries that are out there today seem to be focusing more on people than they are on Jesus. And that's not to say you guys aren't important. I serve the Lord by serving you. But at the end of the day, you're not more important than Jesus. He's the one that I serve. He's the one that I worship. I'm not standing up here for you. I'm standing up here for him. I'm standing here because I know this is what he's asked and he desires. Yes, he wants to impart things to you, but ultimately he wants to be worshiped by you and he wants to be worshiped by me. And so many people are focusing their ministries on everything else. They're, they're focusing on the individual who heads the ministry. They're focusing on individuals uh, within the ministry. They're focusing on the organization itself more than they're focusing it on the God who they claim to be ministering on behalf of. I've suggested this before, but just go to the websites of some of the most popular TV preachers, some of the most popular you know, radio presenters today and, and, and writers and authors and search for references to Jesus on those sites. Just do a word search. You can do it. Look how many times Jesus' name comes up. Look for words like God, the Father, or things like that, Holy Spirit. Then go through it and look for the number of times that their names appear or the names of their organization appears. I, I did this one time, and I, the last time I did this, I gave the name of the individual, and I have matured a lot since those days. So you can apply this to, to, to lots of people because this is 12 years later, right? But I'm just telling you, I'll just use a fictitious name. But I went to a particular televangelist website, and I will say it was a she, and, and the ministry was named after her. It was Betty Jo's Ministries, 
you know, Betty, that'd be like, to me, I can never fathom that. That's like, you know, Joe's church, you know, or Randy's church. No, no, you know, we're Calvary Chapel because it points to Calvary and the work that God has done there. But, but it's all about, it was Betty Joe's ministry. And then when there were tabs that I could click open to the pages that were all focused on her, it was about Betty Joe. Betty Joe's life story, Betty Joe's itinerary, connect with Betty Joe from Betty Joe's desk. Click here for Betty Joe's something publication today. Betty Joe's missions. It wasn't even the missions work we're doing. It was Betty Joe's missions. There wasn't even one reference in that entire site that I could find to Jesus Christ on the entire site to Jesus Christ. And I searched most of the other tabs that I went through looking for it and could find no references like that. In fact, most references that I found to God were generally done so in the context of that particular ministry person and their relationship in ministry. But it really had nothing to do with Jesus. But I'm just telling you, that person was not alone. That person was not alone. Because after I looked at that website, I went to other websites, a good number of them, of popular people out there, and, and, and both men and women, and nearly every case I found the same thing. No real substantial mention of God or Jesus Christ on the homepage. No songs of praise being sung to him, just stuff that focused you on them and on their ministries. Even though I haven't done this drill again recently, I can guarantee you it hasn't gotten better. I can just tell you that without even looking. It has not gotten better because we're now living in a time when the focus is totally about me. Everything's about us. The whole world is moving that way and the church is following lock, stock, and barrel. Even messages being preached from the pulpit today have more to do with people and less to do with God. You know, listen to the message that so many well-known personalities are preaching about today. It's all about them and all about you. Their messages are focused on self-help, emotional wellness, achieving your purpose in this life, developing and living your vision, living your best day now, and so on and so forth. And, and, And these are the messages that people want to hear. This isn't like they're giving people things that they don't want to hear. They're popular because this is what people want to hear. Otherwise, these teachers wouldn't exist. They wouldn't be in the positions that they're in today. Their their messages are designed to make people feel good about themselves and people like that. But here's my question. Is that what it's supposed to be about? Is that what we're supposed to be really doing? I mean, any good reading of the Bible would say, "Uh uh-uh. It's not supposed to be about that, even though the application of God's word is absolutely important. You know, I I hope you're getting application as you stand here and you listen to these teachings. I talked with someone this week who said that, you know, going through the book of Revelation, been through it before, said, I never heard anybody take and make applications to it. Well, that needs to happen. We need to have application of these things to our lives now, not just about what will come in the future, but what does it mean to me now? But because we need to have the application, it doesn't mean that we need to make us the focus. God still needs to be the focus, even in the application. It needs to be about him. It needs to be about Jesus. It needs to be about the Holy Spirit. I mean, consider the strong warning that Paul gave to us about this kind of self-focused kind of nonsense. And he says it's going to grow worse in the last days. But he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we'll read verses 1 and 2, 2 Timothy 3, 1. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. That statement alone should tell us that we should not be surprised that we're seeing this kind of stuff growing in this day. Yup, we live in a time when people are lovers of themselves. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he goes on in verse 3, 
And he says this, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, Paul goes on to tell us how this self-focus will work itself out spiritually in people's lives. He said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So a lot of people are wrapped up in fables today. Because it's tickling their ears. Because it's what they want to hear. Because it makes them feel good. That's exactly what we're seeing. Paul is an absolute prophet when he wrote this. Let there be no doubt in your mind. This is a prophetic statement that we're seeing fulfilled in our very eyes. The most popular, the most listened to preachers and teachers today aren't the ones who are faithfully teaching God's word and focusing people on Jesus. It's the ones who are making it all about you how you feel, what it is you want, what works out best for your self-actualizing life, making you feel good about you, all done with this mix of spirituality. And it's a terrible stew. It's a rotten stew. But it all gets mixed together. And this stuff just, I'm just telling you, it makes me, I'll be blunt, it just makes me want to puke. It just makes me want to puke. Because when it comes to the spiritual, the focus isn't supposed to be you. It's supposed to be God, and it's supposed to be the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He's supposed to be the focus of the song that we're singing and not ourselves. Now, none of this is meant to imply that preaching and teaching shouldn't impact your life. It absolutely should. It should be absolutely life-changing. After all, Jesus said that he came so that you and I could have life and that we could have it more abundantly. But that abundant life isn't found in the context of you. I know we think that, right? If I do all these things for myself, I'm going to have a great life. You know, some of the people who think that they're achieving for themselves great lives are some of the most empty people that are out there today. And they just keep filling it up more and more so that they can look happy. But the reason they're filling it up more and more is so that they can stay happy because of that gnawing emptiness that still exists because they're making it all about themselves. The only way we find the satisfaction is when it's found in the context of Christ himself only in the context of Christ. And when the focus shifts from him to you, I guarantee you, although you might find some helpful things for your life, things that will make you feel good emotionally and and even spiritually in this life, you will not end up experiencing the real life that you and I were created and meant to live, the real abundant life that Christ spoke of. Our lives are meant to be about God and not about us. And our worship is to be about him and not about us. And I suggest to you guys this morning that there's only one way to break free of the worship of ourselves and to make the Lord our primary focus. And that's to be in the same state that these saints are in here in this passage. And you know what state they're in in this moment that he sees them? Anybody know? They're dead physically, right? In the sense of their human life. They're dead now. When I say this, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We need to die. No, nobody's going to pass out the poison, okay? But we need to die. We need to die to self. We need to die spiritually, you see? We need to die like these saints here in this passage have died because they can make God their absolute focus of their song like this because they've died. There's no more of their human flesh that's getting in the way of their worship of him. It's pure. It's right. It's, it's all about him. And the more of us that we willingly throw 
aside, the more of us that we literally let go into the spiritual grave, which is what's supposed to happen when we come to Christ. I know that there's teachings out there today that say, well, it's about faith in Jesus, but dying, that's just for the disciples. That's nonsense. It's for all of us. It doesn't mean you've lost your salvation because you haven't died like this, but the intent of the scriptures, it's all over the pages that we would come to Christ, that we would surrender our lives, that we would do exactly what we claim to do when we go get baptized, right? That we would, we would die with him on that cross, go into the grave with him in there, and that we would be resurrected to new life. But it wouldn't be us anymore. It would be Christ living in us. It would be Christ in us and us in Christ that would come up and emerge from the grave, you see. And, and that's the only way. And the more of us that we willingly throw into the spiritual grave, the more God's going to become the center of our worship and the more he'll be glorified. And the more he's made the focus of and glorified by our lives like this, the more we will begin to experience life as we were meant to experience it. And John the Baptist had it right when he said in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. You see? I think the mantra today, I think we ignore that verse. I think if we were honest with ourselves, we would probably say it this way. He must increase, but I must increase too. You see, I must benefit too. No, the only way I benefit is to decrease. The only way I benefit is for Christ to become more of my life than less of my life. And for me to become less of my life and for Christ to become more of my life. And anything less than this in our worship of God will not be what it should be and our lives won't be what they should be. Well, that's what John now sees happening here. These men and the women, these saints who've given their all for Christ, they've laid down their lives, even their physical lives, and they're gathered here now. They're not just standing around that glassy sea, but they're standing on it, and they're making God the absolute center, the absolute focus of their worship as they play their harps and they sing this beautiful song to him that has nothing to do with anything except him. That's what I like about this song. Who will not fear you, O Lord, right? It's all about Jesus. And might I just say one more thing before we move on? I know I've related that to their physical deaths, but I'm just telling you, these guys died to self before they ever got to their physical death or they wouldn't have died as boldly as they will during the tribulation period. They're taking a stand for Jesus in a time when it's not easy to do. They're taking a time when they knew it was going to cost them their lives. I'd argue from the moment they put their faith in Jesus, they died to self and cast their care to the wind and said, you know what? My physical life is nothing. I've already died. And he's now the one that's beating within me. He's my life. And Paul said that I die daily. Man, that should be our hearts. I die daily. Can we learn that? You know, I hope that we can learn to make Jesus the focus like that, dying more and more to self, just as these folks have. Well, look in verse 5. He says this, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. We will pick up on that verse next week because this is the opening to what we're going to see and we'll roll right into chapter 16 where we'll be dealing with the bold judgments. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.